You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. Crazy. So that's one word for it. Strange. That's another one. Out of control. Well, so it's really hard these days to start to see the world rightly, isn't it? Maybe that's just me, but I feel like we all are craving certainty. But what we're getting is confusion. Those words give way to some questions that I've been asking, and maybe they're questions that you've been asking too. What does church look like when everything that is normal isn't on anymore? Is this movement called the church just stuck in like this perpetual holding pattern like everything else? Or probably the most blunt way I could ask it, how do we participate in Jesus's movements when the world doesn't seem to be moving at all? Well, those questions aren't really strange to the pages of the New Testament. The early days of the church are oddly very similar to ours. Confusion was the order of the day. Nobody knew what was happening. Everyone was unsettled at best, fearful at worst. Even the deepest believers found themselves doubting. Resolute disciples were wandering. It seems that you and I probably have more in common with our spiritual ancestors than we might imagine. So this week starts a new four-part teaching series called Like Fire, and I can't be more excited. Here's why. Fire is a really interesting phenomenon, isn't it? It's wild, it's unpredictable, and it's dangerous. It spreads fast, it changes landscapes, it can be really destructive. But fire can also be really beautiful. It gives light, it provides comfort, it warms cold places and cold people. The image of fire shows up in some really interesting places in the life of the early church. On the road to Emmaus, the two disciples' hearts burn like fire. In John chapter 21, the disciples, after they're fishing together, Jesus actually has them sitting around a fire. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes with fire. And then later, when Paul is talking about what it's like to plant churches in a Roman world, he describes the agony and ecstasy of discipleship like burning fire in his heart. And so for the next four weeks, we're going to follow this image through the New Testament. And we're going to get an up-close and personal look at the life of the early church. And I think that you'll find that, yes, following Jesus is as unpredictable and as dangerous as you might imagine. But it is also as exciting and as warming as you would hope it to be. So this morning, we're making a jump. Uh, We're going from Matthew's gospel on Easter morning over to Luke's gospel on Easter afternoon. The resurrection has happened. It's Easter Sunday. Jesus has risen just like he said. He kept his word just like he always does. The grave is empty and word is getting out. And so with the news of Jesus' resurrection just hours old, Roman and Jewish authorities are strangely united in this shared sense of stifled panic. What are we going to do? And this small band of disciples are now wondering, Okay, well, now what? The stage is set for Jesus' movement to begin, and it's dangerous, and it spreads quickly, and it changes absolutely everything. So this morning, we're taken to this haunting, moving scene, 
that raises just as many questions as it provides answers. But beyond the mystery and deeper than the awe, Luke wants to show us that seeing your world rightly starts with seeing Jesus clearly. So a little bit about Luke before we jump in. Who is this guy and and what is he trying to teach us? So the New Testament only has like three references to Luke, but they're really helpful. So first, the book of Colossians tells us that Luke was a doctor, something that would have given him an elevated status, um, especially above other New Testament writers. Also, the Apostle Paul tells, tells us that he was a fellow laborer. That's what he used to describe Luke. And so Luke probably traveled with Paul on one, if not more, of his missionary journeys. And when Paul was in prison in Rome, he wrote that only Luke was with him. And so just taking all of the New Testament data, Luke used his talents for God's glory. He was motivated by the gospel. And above all else, he was faithful. But we can also conclude that Luke was kind of a guy that didn't like to toot his own horn very much. Um, He was a pretty humble guy. He wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. That's like a quarter of the New Testament, but he never mentions his name. He's an incredibly deep researcher. He does extensive research about Jesus. He has a deep grasp of the Greek language, but he never elevates his own writing. We don't know the details about his conversion, but he was clearly a man who was changed by Jesus. And so the second thing about Luke is he was sponsored by a wealthy patron named Theophilus. That's a great name. It literally means God lover. Now we know next to nothing about Theophilus, but scholars speculate he was probably a wealthy Roman who enjoyed a position of prominence and influence. And so we should see Luke's gospel and the book of Acts kind of like an ancient Kickstarter project. There was a lot of interest in learning about Jesus, but it needed some funding to really get off the ground, and that's where Theophilus came in. So last little bit, and then we'll dive in. Luke starts out his gospel with a laser-focused purpose, and I want to read to you what he says. This is right out of Luke chapter 1. You don't have to turn there, but I just want to give you why Luke wrote the way that he writes. Luke 1, right out of the gate, here's what he has to say. He says, "...inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, it seemed good to me also, having followed these things closely for some time in the past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. So Luke wants to give his patron, his readers, and thereby us one gift, the gift of certainty. He knows that other things have been written about Jesus, Matthew and Mark, had been written by this point, but he wants to shine additional light on some scenes in Jesus's life with one thing in mind, certainty. And I love that because you're like, you can picture Luke working, writing, pouring over his research all the time with one idea in his head. He says, if I could just get them to focus their attention on Jesus, if I could get them to be certain about Jesus, if I could help them see Jesus clearly, that would make all the difference. And that's so close to my own heart. I love that that fire that burns in Luke. So here's Theophilus wanting to join this Jesus in his movement. And he's intrigued by this Jewish carpenter, his group of followers. And in a world that's reeling from confusion, Luke wants to show him how seeing his world rightly starts with seeing Jesus clearly. Now here's why that matters for us this morning in 2020. If you want to have a handle on how to think, live, and survive and thrive in a COVID-19 world, it starts and ends with Jesus. So, it's late morning on that first Easter, and Luke takes us to a gravel road that leads outside of Jerusalem. We're eavesdropping on a conversation between two men. Well, three men, but the third doesn't show up until later. And that takes us to Luke chapter 24, 
We're going to start in verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. Now, this is the part of the story that scholars call the exposition. It's basically the biblical version of once upon a time, and it answers important questions about the story's tone and where we're heading. So first, when? That's the first question this thing says. Well, later that day or that very day. So Easter afternoon, probably late afternoon. Okay, second question is who? Just says two of them. That's not entirely helpful. It's a very general answer, but we can assume that these are two disciples. Now, Jesus had 12 core disciples. Those are the guys that followed him tightly all throughout the Gospels. But then there was this also group of about 40 or 70 people that hung around on the fringes. They stood at the edges of the crowd while Jesus talked. They, they knew the familiar cast of characters, and Jesus knew them. So it's likely that these two were a part of that 40 to 70 sort of fringe group. Third question, where? It just says, simply, it says they were walking on the road to Emmaus, heading to a village about seven miles from Jerusalem. Now, again, this is just a bit of information. We don't know exactly where Emmaus was, but it was over seven miles away from Jerusalem. That would be like walking from here in North Canton to the side of Canal Fulton. This is quite a walk. So the last crucial detail is what? What are they doing? They're just walking, and it says that they're talking. Interesting, isn't it, how walking and talking just kind of go together. Mandy and I have been doing a lot of that recently just around our neighborhood, and my guess is you may have too. Walking just kind of clears the air, doesn't it? Just kind of gives your mind the freedom to reel and to think and relax and wander for a bit. You process through your day, process through your feelings and your thoughts. And so the seven-mile walk for these two disciples is probably a very welcome change from the intensity of the last week. Now, Luke doesn't tell us why they were headed to Emmaus. And scholars love to speculate on that, but I think the most convincing reason is that like so many others in Jerusalem who saw their Messiah mercilessly crucified, it's likely that these two just thought that was the end. They probably just threw up their hands and hung their heads and said, well, that's it. Right when we thought things were going to be set right, oh, well. We thought Jesus was the one, like, oh, well. What happened to our Messiah? Oh, well. How many of you know that Jesus loves oh, well moments? Jesus takes oh, well moments and turns them into oh, wow moments. And this happens over and over again in the Gospels. Here's your expectation. Boom, here's the reality. Like, here's what you thought would happen. Here's what I'm doing instead. Here's what you thought about this person and the way they were and their identity. Here's how I'm going to use them and what I'm going to do with them. Jesus takes oh wells and turns them into oh wows. Because here's the thing. We are clinically, perpetually, hopelessly terrible judges of our world, aren't we? We can't see things straight at all. It doesn't stop us from offering our opinion most times, but really. So by opening his story with this scene... Luke is paving the way for helping us understand that seeing our world rightly starts with seeing Jesus clearly. Let's keep going. So the second and longest section of this story is where things really take off. That exposition, the who, what, when, where, now give way to the all-important why, because someone shows up who changes everything. Verse 15. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, 
What is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? Now, this is what story experts call the rising action. Right off the bat, you can see that Luke is using a storytelling device called dramatic irony. And for those of you who hated sophomore English class, here's what that is. It just means that we know something as readers that the main characters don't know yet. And here's why that's important. Let's remember Luke's point in writing in the first place. Luke is writing to give his patron certainty. So he's okay telling us the who, what, when, where. And then he's leveraging the, ten the tension of this story to bait us, almost begging us to ask, why is Jesus there? What's he going to do? What's the point of this whole thing? All in good time. And so it's easy to imagine, isn't it? Jesus' footsteps coming up behind him. His sandals crunching the gravel on the path. His pace just a little bit faster than theirs. And then he catches up to them, but he doesn't pass them. He wants to walk with them. And in typical Jesus fashion, what's he do? He asks them a question. He says, what are you guys talking about? Which is such a total Jesus move. He does this kind of stuff all the time, over and over in Luke's gospel. In Luke 8, Jesus calms the storm, and then he asks the disciples, why did you doubt? He knows. When he's pressing into Peter, he says, okay, Peter, who do you say I am? Just before he heals a blind man, he says, what do you want me to do for you? More than 14 times in Luke's gospel, Jesus leads with a question. In fact, in this whole story, Jesus only speaks three times, and each time it's with a question. Why does he do that? Well, I'll give you a hint. Jesus never asks a question because he doesn't know the answer. Jesus asks a question because he wants to gently bring the hearer to a point where they're ready to verbalize something very deep and very difficult. And so how do these two respond? Their first response is just an emotion. He asks them this question, and then text simply says, and they stood still looking sad. And they aren't sad because this stranger doesn't know the details. They aren't sad because he's strangely aloof. They're sad because he's rubbing salt in an open wound. Miles of gravel underneath their feet, the consistent rhythm of footfall after footfall, and then they stop. And the rhythm of their walk is disrupted by a question that was not only completely ill-timed, but apparently so unempathetic, they stop still. And then finally, one of them, named Cleopas, comes out with it. Here's what he says, verse 18. Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? Like, there you go, Jesus, with your question. And he said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all of this, it's now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some of our women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and they didn't find his body. They came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said he was still alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Now, this has to be like the hundredth time that Cleopas went through all these details in his mind. Hope, death, burial, now what? Hope, death, burial, now what? Hope, death, burial, now what? And all of his hopes are like a well-worn path at this point. Who does this guy think he is to make me drudge all of this back up? This is painful. Just because he's so obtuse and ignorant, why do I have to deal with it? I'm trying to get over it, and I've got to indulge this ignorant stranger. 
Now, before we rush to judge him, the very end of this feels like an emotional free fall into a confession, doesn't it? Verse 24, there's this big gap between verse 24 and verse 25. He says, we just didn't see him. And you have to know that there's this gap, this gaping silence, this awkward, exhausted sigh that essentially says, I don't know what to do anymore. Do you ever feel that way? Sure you have. There's this unwritten, unrecorded question of frustration that's just kind of hanging in the air. Okay, now what? We don't know who you are. We don't know what you want. We don't know what any of this means, but what are we supposed to do now? Now, we cannot rush past this. In the face of pain, many of us act the exact same way. Remember how last week we said that even when God is doing amazing things, that fear is often the first emotion to show up? Well, here's the second emotion. It's pain. It's this feeling that just says, I am not okay, this is not what I expected, and this stinking hurts. Anybody ever feel like that, maybe a touch of that this morning? You could be grieving the loss of your rhythm. You could be grieving the loss of your freedoms, your, your daily routine. You could be grieving the loss of family, friends, or neighbors. And this, at the risk of sounding too clinical, we are meant to be overwhelmed by these feelings because something overwhelming is happening. It would be inhuman to stand here in the middle of the crisis facing our community and our world, and we're a month in and still be debating about the best way to cook macaroni and cheese. Like, no, this is about something that's much bigger than that. It's actually overwhelming. And so what if the natural human response is just to go, <sighs> and so maybe the biggest gift I can give you this morning is just permission to relax and be human. Guys, we've only seen the first shades of the pain that this is going to cause. Some members of our community, our, our church family, and our city are not going to come back the same. And so we're left with this heavy, wordless ache that's only described as a deep sense of loss. And so here's the question that we're probably barely courageous enough to ask. Why? Why would Jesus do this? Remember, we're given privy information here. We know it's Jesus. So we've got to believe he's got his best intention. He knows what he's doing. These guys don't even know who he is. So we've got to ask, like, what kind of person would deliberately lead someone to the point of their pain again? Hear me. Jesus loves you enough to lead you to your pain so he can lead you through your pain. Jesus loves you enough to lead you to your pain so he can lead you through your pain. Now that sounds cute, but what does it mean? It means that pain is an opportunity to acknowledge worry and exchange it for worship. Pain is a gift from God to show us the joy of dependence is way better than the illusion of independence. It means that pain, loss, grief, suffering are tools in the hands of a loving God, not capricious accidents in some purposeless universe. We weep and we agonize and we cry and we get frustrated. Why? Because we are human. Jesus is never asking you to numb your humanity or to forget who you are, but to trust him through it. Pastor and author J.C. Ryle put it like this. I want to read this to you. He says, There's nothing that shows our ignorance so much as our impatience under trouble. We forget that every cross is a message from God intended to do us good in the end. Trials are intended to make us think, to wean us from the world, to send us to the Bible, to drive us to our knees. Health is a good thing, 
But sickness is far better if it leads us to God. Prosperity is a great mercy, but adversity is a greater one if it brings us to Christ. Anything, anything is better than living in indifference and dying in sin. Tell me that doesn't sound like it could have been written yesterday. So what's Jesus do with their pain? He does what no other religious leader ever did. He enters into it. Verse 25, here's what he says. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Here's the missing piece. The missing piece to the puzzle that everyone thought was that Jesus was coming as this conquering king to rule. No, he was actually coming to suffer. Have you ever stopped to consider and think about the idea that the reason that Jesus understands our suffering so much is because he chose to enter into it. When he could have been completely justified to step further away, Jesus actually stepped closer. And so we're meant to hear Jesus' words here, not as like this face palm, like, oh, you foolish people, like you idiots, you morons, how come you couldn't get this? If anything, he's used to dealing with this kind of opaqueness from his own disciples for the last three years, which should give you and I a small measure of comfort. Not that these guys are refusing to believe something or they're hard-hearted, they're just slow-hearted, which is another way of saying, guys, the reason that you're grieving is because you've missed something important. And what are they slow-hearted about? He even says it. He says, didn't you get it? It was necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. That the Christ, which is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah, should suffer. Now Luke doesn't tell us what corners of the Old Testament Jesus took them to, likely from memory. Luke says that Jesus started with Moses, which is another way of saying the first five books of the Bible. So maybe hoping to bring clarity to the last week, Jesus starts at the very beginning. Maybe he took them to Genesis where he talked about how this ancient serpent would strike Jesus' heel, but he would crush his head. Maybe he took him to Exodus, where there was a spotless lamb who would have to die for his people. Maybe he took him to Leviticus, where in order for a sacrifice to be holy, it would have to be drenched in frankincense. And then he went to the prophets. Maybe it was Isaiah 53. If you don't know Isaiah 53, please read it this week. It talks about when he was despised and rejected. Doesn't that sound like an angry mob last Thursday? talks about when he was oppressed, but he didn't open his mouth. Doesn't that sound like a hasty trial before an ad hoc court? It talks about how he was pierced and crushed and whipped. Sound anything like Good Friday? Each one of these images of Jesus from the Old Testament is made richer by the fact that he suffered for you and for me. Now get this, here's the why. Isaiah 53 verse 11. It says, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Now the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus is seven miles long. And you have to know it went by like that. Could you imagine studying the written word of God with the incarnate word of God? What would that have been like? So they've been walking for about three hours the shadows are getting longer. It was toward evening. No doubt the minds of these two men under the spell of this mysterious traveler. How could he know so much about Moses and the prophets and be so ignorant of the last few days? Ironic. 
seeing your world rightly starts with seeing Jesus clearly. And so as they reach the village, their minds are full and their stomachs are empty. We move to the climax of this scene. Act 3. Take a look at verse 28. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he was going to go further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. Now, check this part out. When he was at the table with them, he took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. He took bread he blessed it, and he broke it, and then he gave it to them. Does that sound at all familiar? Like four days ago, hadn't he done that exact same thing in the upper room? Was it the way he prayed? Was it the way he held the bread in his hands? Was it the nail marks on his hands that they saw? Did they see him? Luke doesn't say. But as soon as they recognize him, maybe they shot a quick glance across the table at each other. As soon as they recognize him, boom, he's gone. And the only thing that they're left with is burning hearts. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened the scriptures? This freshly kindled excitement that maybe, just maybe, it isn't all over yet. There's something Jesus does here, though, that relates to certainty over confusion that I want to zero in on. Because here's the thing. These guys' heads are absolutely spinning. Their world has been rocked. This stranger just intruded on their walk. And they're deep in the weeds with Old Testament prophecy. Like, what is Jesus doing here? Jesus is shepherding these two men the exact same way he wants to shepherd you and me. And here it is. Look inside before you look out. Look inside before you look out. He gets them in the smallest, most intimate environment imaginable. A table with bread. Like really simple, right? There's nothing here to distract them. And they have this crazy conversation as they walk and sit and now they're eventually resting and the events of the last days are finally stilled and sort of clearing the water as things settle to the bottom. And in this small space, Jesus opens their eyes. Look inside before you look out. See, here's our problem or at least my problem, I look outside before I look in so that I never, never really have to look in, actually. If I can fix all the crazy out here in the world, if I can make sense of everything outside, then eventually I will get inside. But that's not how Jesus does it. Jesus doesn't go outside in. He'd rather go inside out. Start here. This stuff will figure itself out. And this is always the way with him. Do you remember busy Martha in the kitchen? His words weren't Martha more. It was Martha me. Same thing with Peter on the waves. It wasn't Peter try, it's Peter trust. The woman cheating on her husband and a crowd is ready to stone her. He isn't forget them. He's focused on me. Here's the point. There's a billion things outside. There's problems to solve. There's politicians to critique. There's opinions to offer. There's blogs to read. There's Facebook statuses to update. How many of us have stopped long enough to realize that none of that brings any peace? Why? Because it wasn't designed to. We are not meant to go outside in. We are meant to look inside to go out. We've got to be changed before we can make a change. We've got to be formed before we see a reformation. We've got to look inside before we look out. Seeing our world rightly starts with seeing Jesus clearly. One other detail about this text, and then we'll, we'll move on. Have you noticed how much sight plays into this story? 
Verse 16, they said, it says that their eyes were kept from seeing him. Verse 23, the women saw a vision. Verse 24, but they didn't see him. And then here in verse 31, their eyes were opened. Sitting at this table after a seven-mile walk, you have to catch it. What does God's word say about how we walk? How do we walk? We walk by what? Do we walk by sight? Or do we walk by something else? Seeing our world rightly starts with seeing Jesus clearly. So what do they do? They leave the table set. They leave the bread broken. And they take a seven-mile run back to Jerusalem. Verse 33. And they arose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the 11, who, 11 and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Now they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. And the story ends there, at least this chapter. The small conversation between two friends and one engaging stranger. Now, here's the part that I love about this. We don't know what else these guys did. We only know one of their names. They never wrote a New Testament letter. You know, they never planted a church, at least not that we know of. They never made it big. But for some reason, the King of Glory spent most of the day, arguably the most important day in all of history with them, to open their eyes, to warm their hearts, and to send them off as disciples of the Master. So, if seeing our world rightly starts with seeing Jesus clearly, where do we miss it? Like, what are the smudges on our glasses? Where do our eyes get hazy? What prevents us from seeing Jesus clearly? Well, there are a few things that I could throw your way this morning, but um, I only want to give you two because I think these two are hard. Um, they're very difficult. They're things that I'll just let you know. There's, these are things that I struggle with in my life, and so I know that, that you probably do too. These are two things that I know that prevent me from seeing Jesus clearly, and so I offer them up to you today. First thing, control. We love control, don't we? Not just as a culture, but as humans. Like, control is a sign of security. We say things like, man, she has really got herself together. Like, that guy, he is smooth and steady through this whole thing. But here's the thing, and you know it. When confusion comes, and it always does, whether that's through the loss of a family member, the loss of a job, the emotional crazy. You being in control is the last thing you need. What you need is a sovereign God. Let go and let God, like Jesus, take the wheel. God bless the hearts behind those sentiments. They just reflect terrible theology. The truth is that you never had control of the wheel of the universe, and God would never give it to you. You letting go of a situation, that doesn't give God permission to work. I don't let God do anything. He's God. He can do what he wants. And I know you're saying, like, oh, come on, you're overthinking that. I don't think I am, because I listen to people all day talk through their frustrations in their lives. And searching my own life, I know it's true. The common factor is my wonder at my inability to control life. And so untying these knots of confusion, pain, and frustration has to start with me getting a really crystal clear view of what I am incapable of in light of the fact that God is always capable. It's exactly what he did on the Emmaus Road. God big, you small. And so practically, like if you're feeling those things, confusion, pain, frustration, I'm going to give you a really freeing exercise. And I want you to try this out this week. Write down a can't-do list. It's like a to-do list only backwards. Reflect on your emotions and write down what you're not able to do. Could be things like this. 
I'm not able to heal myself. I'm not able to give myself peace. I'm not able to provide for my known needs. I'm not able to fix everybody else's problems. I'm not able to be the perfect parent. I'm not able to keep everybody around me happy all the time. And at first, if you do this, this is going to be the roughest exercise. But I promise you it's going to be super freeing for you because it's going to do two things. One, it's going to show you what you're really burdened about. It's going to show you what really hurts you. But then two, it's going to show you where you need Jesus to show up in your life in a big way. And that gets us to the second thing that helps us see Jesus rightly, or prevents us from seeing Jesus rightly, is worry. Worry is related to control. It's kind of the next step, okay? So control's like, all right, I got to hold this thing. But then you realize, like, if I'm not in control, worry's like, I don't know who actually is. And here's why this is so important for us. If you give up control, like we just talked about, you've got to fill that space. You've got to replace that need for security with a person because it fills in quick. Worry steps into the space created by loss of control and says, I will take things from here. And you don't want worry driving that bus because security is always tied to a person. Here's how Jesus puts it. I'm going to read you this. This is from Matthew chapter 6. And we were talking about this as a staff this week. It's so incredible. Here's Jesus' words. He says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, nor about what you put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And then he gives a couple examples. He says this. He says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Great. Another question from Jesus. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. Here's the second example. How they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Interesting. He says, look, you're more valuable than sparrows. You're more valuable than these flowers that are so beautiful. You are valuable to God. And so here's what he says. Don't be anxious saying, what do we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? Why? Verse 32, he says, for the Gentiles seek after these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them. So what's he saying? Security is always tied to a person and every other person will fail you other than God. Now see, it's interesting to come to a text like that or to reflect on these guys on the Emmaus Road and just go, oh, don't be anxious. Just like, here, deal, do that. Don't be anxious. No, way easier said than done. Replacing anxiety with trust is not a all-at-once light switch. It is a gradual dimmer. Why? Because, again, security is tied to a person. Following Jesus is not transactional. It is relational, and that takes time. We've got to know him. So worries, worries only cure is to gospel my own heart that there is a God who loves me. And that's the message of the Emmaus Road. Crazy, strange, and out of control. It's so easy to see the world through foggy lenses, especially when I am the source of my own fog. My prayer this morning is that we would learn to see God clearly. God wants us to see our world rightly. There's so much crazy and confusion happening. Where does it start? Seeing our world rightly starts with seeing Jesus clearly. Let me pray for us. 
Father, again, you've given us so much in your son. I love that you carved out a day to spend with these two men. God, the lesson for us is that you want to spend time with us. You want to be with us. You want to help open our eyes. And so, God, if there's anybody listening who doesn't know you, God, would they seek you today? God, for those of us that have been walking with you and still don't recognize you, God, would you open our eyes? I'm just indicted on the idea that here these guys were walking with you and didn't recognize you, and how many of us are guilty of the same thing? We know you, but then we don't even walk with you. So, Father, come close to us. We love you. Say thank you so much for the fact that you put fire in our hearts to know you more. And for some of us, that's like a smoldering ember. It's barely a glow. Would you blow on that fire? God, cause us to love you more. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at nchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces making much of Jesus every day to everyone.